Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in such a personal way. We are grateful that even though you are the creator of all things, beyond all comprehension, and that, Lord, um, you still are mindful of each and every one of us, that we matter to you, that human beings everywhere matter to you. We pray now that as we worship you in the understanding of your word, that you would bring truth to us. We pray that we would be inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that because of that, our lives would continue to be spiritually transformed so that we may walk closer with you, Jesus. For we ask this in your precious name. Amen. My wife's not here with me today. She's with her sister in Omaha. And I think that's really a good thing because I'm going to talk about the birth of our second child. And I don't want you to hear rebuttal. I want you to hear my take on it. It was the beginning of July, 1987. And a heat wave came in. I mean, a heat wave. We were up over 90 degrees. In fact... We were into the 100 degrees. Hardly ever seen here as I can remember in my 66 years in Chicago. Our air conditioning went out. I got a pregnant lady out to here about to deliver. I got a 16-month-old child And no air conditioning. Then, to add to that stress, I was doing four to six weddings every weekend. So I asked my wife if she wouldn't mind delivering the child anywhere after five o'clock on Saturday and before three o'clock on Friday. I'm a fortunate man. My wife obliged me. She went into labor on a Sunday night while I was asleep both times. And she was so incredible. She let me sleep for a couple hours before she woke me up because she knew I was tired. Well, the first time Marcia went to the hospital for our first child, she took a shower, she shaved her legs, she put on her makeup, she put on her nice clothes. She went to the hospital and they told her to strip and put on one of those hospital gowns. So she said, I'm not doing that this time. She put on a red, long, velour robe. Looked like something out of Harry Potter. She said, Craig, time to go. Because if you know anything about children, first one takes longer, the rest, contractions, you know, come down pretty quick. And there's no way this guy wants to be involved in delivering a child. 
loved watching my children be born, is a miracle of God, absolutely precious. We get to the hospital, and my wife says, Craig? I said, yeah, go ahead and get out. I'll park the car, and we can go in. Craig? Okay, what? I haven't had a contraction since we left the house. Oh, good. What do you want to do? You want to go in? You want to go home? What do you want to do? I don't know. Well, I don't know either. So we finally figured maybe we ought to call the doctor. So I drove to a, a donut shop not far away because we didn't have cell phones back then unless you were really rich. And then they were really big. And uh, we got to the, to the donut shop and I said, honey, we're here. Go on in. Here's a quarter. Call a doctor. No, you call the doctor. Wait a minute. You call the doctor. I don't even have the doctor's number. I can give you the doctor's number. But honey, I don't know what to say to the doctor. You go in. I'm the pregnant lady. I said, the answering service is going to ask me questions. I don't even know what to anticipate to get the answers. I don't know if my logic won out or my persistence. But my wife walks into this donut shop at 5.30 in the morning in this Harry Potter robe and calls the doctor. It was awesome. We decided to go into the hospital. We did. Contraction started again. They lasted for over 12 hours. She was in back labor. It was brutal. I moved in my seat once too often and I got chewed out for it. But she delivered a healthy baby girl. And afterwards, they handed me my daughter and I placed her on my wife's chest and I asked the doctors and nurses if they'd just give us a minute so that I could pray over them. And I knelt and prayed. Well, in the text today, Paul prays for the newborn church at Colossae. He didn't really know them. He didn't really go through the Lycus Valley where that's located. Although he had converts like Epaphras, who we are told is the one who planted this church, <clears throat> who spread the gospel there. And Epaphras had come to Rome to report to Paul what was happening but also to minister to Paul, for he was imprisoned at this time. And he tells Paul about the Colossians, and he tells them about the false teachers that are there as well. And Paul was moved. He said from the time he heard about it, he was moved to pray for them. And he prayed a discipleship prayer, even though he didn't know them. It is a discipleship prayer that is worthy of any of us, but it was in particular helpful to deal with the issues that they were wrestling with. He prayed for their spiritual growth because these false teachers were teaching that there was something more than Christ that they needed when in fact God had provided everything 
that we need through Christ. Now the big idea today is that when praying for others, we ought to consider offering up a discipleship prayer for their spiritual transformation that comes from the true knowledge and power of the Lord. When praying for others, offer up a discipleship prayer for spiritual transformation that comes from the true knowledge and power of the Lord. Now I want us to take note before unpacking the text what it begins with. Um, Please open up your Bibles if you haven't to Colossians 1 chapter 9. As we take note, we're going to put up the first part of verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. This is very important. This is essential. Paul is asking that God would fill the Colossians. He knows that they are unable to spiritually be transformed in their own power. Just as every one of us is unable to spiritually transform ourselves, no matter how hard we work at it. We will fail over and over again. Because spiritual transformation is not in our power. We may desire it. We may know it's good for us. But unless God is doing the work in us and we're participating with him, we will not be spiritually transformed. The Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary, which is why when Jesus left, he told his disciples he was going to send another like himself who would walk with them and who has walked with every disciple of his ever since. And that Holy Spirit, we are told, takes up residence within us who believe in Jesus. He is a person, but he is also the power of God. And he is necessary. You know, there's an old saying, A leopard doesn't change his spots. In the old neighborhood where I come from, somebody says, well, he's probably changed. I say, what's different about him? Why do you say he's changed? A leper, leopard, doesn't change his spots. I really believe that. But if somebody tells me, ah, he's come to faith in Jesus, I go, whoa, That's a whole new deal. Because the scripture says we get to be a new creation. That the working of God's spirit inside of us will make us new. And so I believe that everyone who comes to saving faith can change and can be different. Not because the power is of us, but because the power comes from God. This is why Paul prays that you may be filled. Essentially important to a discipleship prayer. Paul prays that the Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will through spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
Paul is not praying for the wisdom of the Greeks. And he is not praying for the practical understanding of the world. He is praying for spiritual wisdom and understanding that comes from God alone. Consider what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom. Although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now he's talking here about the redemptive plan of God that comes through the Messiah. It's hidden and secret until Jesus shows up. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's there if we know what to look at. But this is that wisdom that God will correct our sin problem through the Messiah, by grace, through faith in Him. We read on, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He's the Messiah. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And it is the Spirit of God that brings us the knowledge, right? the knowledge of God's will. That brings us spiritual wisdom and understanding. What's important for us to consider this morning about this is not just that we need the Holy Spirit to understand, but that God's will is revealed in two ways. Theologians tell us that there is the general will of God that is given to all children. It is revealed in God's Word. This makes total sense. It is revealed in the living Word, Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is revealed in the written word, the Bible. Because the Bible tells us about our need for God's plan of salvation. And the Bible tells us how God will engage in that. And the Bible tells us God's plan for us to live holy lives. God's will for us is written in His Word. And this is especially important because these false teachers are trying to tell them that there is another wisdom that they need to add to Jesus. And isn't that often the case? I've seen that happen with many, many Christians. I had a man who I've known for 20 years and who came to Saving Faith at my previous church. And he came to talk to me because he had been at this seminar and he was exposed to some 
new knowledge that is related to his profession. And he began to talk to me about it. And he's very excited and caught up about it. And he's talked to people who are like really important. And he said, well, you know, there's wisdom. I said, yes, there is. I'm sure there's wisdom in some of that. I'm sure it makes some sense. But it is mixed with darkness. So beware. Run it by the Scriptures, the Word of God, which is truth, that has no darkness in it. He asked me some questions because he wanted to know what I would say to him. And I said, well, what do you think I'm going to say to you? He said, well, you're going to say what the Scripture said. And he goes, ba 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 ba. So, tell me what you think. I said, no, I won't tell you what I think. Go to the Word of God. You know what I think. And you know what God thinks. It's not hidden. This general will of God is essentially important for all of us. Because not all wisdom is true light. And not all wisdom is of equal importance. Not all wisdom saves. You're driving down the road... And the rider with you says, man, look at that spectacular building over there. You turn your head, you look. It is spectacular. That's something else. Well, it's true. But when the guy in front of you says, oh, slam on the brakes, you're going to hit this person, you slam on the brakes. Which one's more important? Which one's of more value? Not all wisdom is equal. There is also, we are told by theologians, God's specific will that is given to God's children for a particular situation or a moment in time. While God's general will comes through the Scriptures, so we know what God considers to be holy living, and we understand that God wants us to live that way. In God's specific will, He speaks to us for a particular situation or moment in time. So, when the time came, after years of service, and I said to God, what more do you want me to do for you? He said, you've done everything I've asked of you where you are. You don't need to do anymore. A specific word for me. I said, wow! What's next, Lord? And he got laryngitis for about two years. And I had to process and do a lot of work, which was really good for me. That was God's specific will speaking to me in that moment in time. Paul was talking about both of these. We often think of the latter as the more important, when in fact, the general will of God is more important to us. In fact, the specific will of God should never, ever negate, deny, or misrepresent the general will of God. If it's not in line with the general will of God, then 
It's not the specific will of God. It's something else. The second thing Paul does is pray for spiritual transformation that will come from obedience to God's will. I'm speaking here about knowledge that leads to action. In verse 10, we read, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The description that he is providing here is obedience and submission to God's will. That we would act in ways that bear fruit in every good work. The good work that he's talking about is godliness, what we call godliness. It's acting in accordance with God's will. It's doing what the Word of God tells us to do. It's living it out. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he talks precisely about this, that we're saved for these good works. Not that these good works save us, but that God uses us once we are saved to engage in good works that he has set apart. Look at what we read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. As evangelicals, I know we work very hard to produce good works. And sometimes we work so hard that we forget that these are to come out of being saved. They don't save us. They're not important in that light. But they're a response to God saving us. And again, just like the knowledge of God, the Spirit of God must fill us if we're going to do this. Paul further describes what this godliness looked like. He describes it as fully pleasing to the Lord. Now, we live in a culture where pleasing, pleasing, pleasing. Did you guys know I I had speech therapy for years? Yeah. And I used to say these, dems, and those. So I have trouble (laughs) with language sometimes. But we live in a culture that pleasing others is undesirable. It is viewed as somebody who, who just wants to be liked and you're not very real. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about being a people pleaser. He is talking about having a healthy respect for the authority of God over you. When you have a healthy respect for authority, you want to please them. Because if you do, you're doing what they expect and what they want of you. And if you fail to please them, well, you're failing to do what they want and expect of you. To please the Lord is a good thing. 
when I was younger and felt God's calling into ministry and was very confused by it because I had grown up Roman Catholic and I had no clue about being a Protestant pastor. I took this idea of pleasing someone else to help guide me. The only thing I saw as a kid were priests. And I knew Protestant pastors weren't like priests because one of my buddies, Keith Ham, his dad was a Baptist preacher. Nice guy. And while I had some semblance of what priests did, for the most part, I tried to lay low with the priests and the nuns. You did not want to be noticed by them. If you did, it was probably something that was going to cost you a ruler on your hands. And I could do that with great aplomb and ease. Did it many times. So I didn't know what to do if I was going to be a pastor. I knew that scripture was important, but, but how do you do it? And I decided that my pastor was a good man. He had become my mentor. So I was going to be like him and I was going to please him. And if I pleased him, then I would do what he's expecting me to do and I would learn how to be a pastor that way. People made fun of me. They said I was aping him. I didn't care. I was busy learning what God wanted me to learn. I would ask myself the question, how would Mike handle this? Not what do I do, because scripture was clear, but how do I handle this? Pleasing to the Lord. Sadly, the world's view is very tainted about this. They see obedience and submission as simple-minded and making you less than others. But obedience and submission are qualities that make you most like Jesus. You think about that. Look at what Paul says about this knowledge of God's will that results in bearing fruit in every good work. He says that it will increase our knowledge of God. Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That means that we will know God more intimately. As a result, there is this ever ascending cycle that leads us closer and closer to God, expanding and increasing the width and depth of our knowledge of God. It's kind of like a vortex. Do we have that slide? <clears throat> Don't worry about it. There it is. As we come to the knowledge of God's will, as we live out God's will for us, 
our knowledge of God expands in its width and in its depth. And we continue to come closer and closer to God. And it is an ongoing cycle because it's part of our sanctification that one day will become our glorification. Paul's prayer for the Colossians continues. And just as he prayed that they may be filled in the first verse with the knowledge of God, now Paul prays that they may be strengthened with God's power. And this is the third point. That Paul prayed for spiritual transformation so that they may be strengthened with God's power in that. Without the power of God through the Holy Spirit, they will not bear fruit. We read in verses 11 and 12, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We're not talking about just any power here. We're talking about the power of God. The power of God to create. God spoke and this world was created. God healed by the power of his word. And God resurrected as he promised. And if you study the Old Testament where God creates, you'll see that the spirit of God was a part of that creation. And if you study the gospels of Jesus, you will find that everything he does, including the resurrection which Paul talks about in Romans, is by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is very powerful, but He is a person. Don't ever forget that. Paul prays that the Spirit will strengthen them so they are able to endure. Now in the New Testament, Most times when it talks about endurance, it's talking about suffering and trials and hardships that we must go through. It doesn't talk about, may you endure your happy marriage. May you endure your wonderful vacation. May you endure these children that you love so much. Although it depends on the kind of children you have. Just kidding. It's always talking about hardship and struggle and suffering. So Paul is praying that the Colossians will have the power to endure so that when the day comes, the day of judgment, they will hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. They will have that lasting power. And he says, the power to endure patiently with joy. Now the opposite of patience is impatience. We can't endure if we're impatient. We just simply won't stick it out. We'll quit. We'll give up. Impatience is really the fruit of immaturity, of selfish desire. It is the ability to put off, right, immediate gratification. 
to not be able to put it off. But patience is the fruit of the Spirit. God gives it to us so that we can endure, so that we can be there to serve others. And beyond this patience, God gives us joy. Joy is also a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is always associated with the kingdom of God. Wherever the kingdom of God is, look in your scripture, there is great rejoicing and great joy. But wherever the kingdom of God is not, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Finally, Paul adds to that list thanksgiving. Gratitude is a natural and appropriate response to God's love that saves. God saves us from a life of emptiness and meaninglessness and death and eternal torment and gives us a new life filled with purpose and significance, filled with life. and the promise of eternal life with God. We who were once dead to God become alive to God. Our trespasses are forgiven and we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. It is because they are children of light that Paul says they can give thanks to the Father. It is because we are children of light that we can give thanks to the Father. So look at what he says in verses 12 through 14 in this ending of Paul's prayer for the Colossians in the first chapter. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love how he writes that. God's kingdom is personal. The kingdom of his son. That's why I love the song that we sang during the offering. Told my wife, I want it at my funeral. Knowing you, Jesus. Nothing greater. Paul's prayer is a general prayer of discipleship. And He has modeled a prayer that we can use in praying for others, even though we do not know them. Now, I know that many of you pray for our global partners on a regular basis. But I wonder how many of us really take the time to pray for the people that their ministry is reaching and touching. To pray for their discipleship. I can tell you, I often don't. I'm praying for that ministry, and I'm thinking that covers everybody, but I'm looking at Paul, who starts praying for the actual people, and I'm saying, oh, 
This is something I can do. So here's a challenge for you. Just this week, and I'm back. Get your world watch so you got all the global partners. And each day, take a few of them and pray not only for them, but pray a discipleship prayer for their people, those they are touching and reaching, even though you don't know them. Be like Paul. Who knows? Maybe your prayers for them are the prayers that will make a difference. I've often noted that when I'm reading these prayers of Paul, he's praying like everything depends upon it. I know it depends upon God. But I also know I don't pray like that all the time. And I ought to. I ought to. I ought to believe that. Even though it's up to God. So that the prayers I offer for others are heartfelt and deep. I invite you to do likewise. Let's pray.